thank you to all of you for your hospitality this weekend. It's been, uh, it's been great to be here. I've thoroughly enjoyed the weekend. One of the things that came up yesterday in the uh, Q&A, uh, Travis asked me a bit about my background. And in the process of giving my testimony, I mentioned that the first doctrine, the first point of theology that really concerned me as a new Christian was the question of eternal security, the perseverance of the saints. Can I lose my salvation? That was one of the first questions I wondered when I first understood the gospel and knew that I was saved. I was worried that I would lose it because I know how how wicked my own heart is. And so I studied this issue. And Travis brought that out yesterday. And last week, actually, I was working on editing an article that dealt a lot with that subject. So it's been on my mind a lot, and uh, I'd like to look at a passage with you that celebrates the security of our salvation. Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at the last two verses in that chapter. I have a letter in my files from a first-time Grace to You listener who wrote to rebuke us for teaching the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This woman was convinced that Christians can and do lose their salvation. And so she wrote a long letter, and in the process she listed practically every verse in the New Testament that contains a warning or an admonition of any kind. She listed, for example, 2 Peter 1, verse 10, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And she listed 2 Peter three seventeen, which says, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And she listed Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. She listed 1 Corinthians 9.27 where the apostle writes, I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. And she listed a page and a half of warning passages like that. Of course, all the key ones from the book of Hebrews and, and uh, insisted that all of these were written to warn Christians that if we do not discipline ourselves and expend our energies in the effort to persevere, we won't have any hope of salvation. And after all, she said, quoting the second half of Matthew ten twenty two, it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. And she said, the way it works is this, God's grace opens the doorway to salvation, but it's up to us, she insisted, by our own free will and personal efforts to maintain our salvation through to the end. And until we make it to the finish line, she said, our salvation is not secure. And she claimed she found that truth taught everywhere in Scripture, and she wanted to know on whose authority we were teaching otherwise. And at the end of her letter, she asked this question, how can you possibly justify your teaching that it is impossible for Christians to fall away from God and be eternally lost? And as I read her letter, at least two dozen different biblical answers came to mind to her questions. I'll give her credit. She had done a significant amount of Bible study to put the letter together. Uh, Her questions were real questions that troubled her heart. But that question that she asked at the end, how can you justify this teaching? To my mind came half a dozen texts or more that were very succinct answers to that question. But the 
the best text that summarizes all of them is a text the Apostle Paul wrote to answer that very question. And it's Romans 8, 38 and 39, our passage this morning. And uh, so I'm going to read the passage, but first let me read that woman's final question one more time, and I'll respond to it with the answer Paul gives in our text. She writes, how can you possibly justify teaching that it's impossible for Christians to fall away and be eternally lost? The Apostle Paul replies, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the very issue Paul is writing about here in Romans 8 is the security of salvation. This entire chapter, Romans 8, is an extended discourse on the doctrine of eternal security. And if we had time this morning, I would take you through it verse by verse and systematically show you the arguments that Paul uses to prove why authentic Christians, true believers in Christ, can never be lost. And we can't go verse by verse in detail. That would take probably the rest of the day or more. But I want to give you a quick overview of Romans 8 and and follow along with me in the text. I hope you have your Bibles open to Romans 8. Just sort of scan this with me. He starts this chapter with a sweeping statement about our justification, which he treats as a settled issue. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 1. He talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and he says in verses 1 through 14 that the Spirit of God indwells and energizes every true believer. Verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And conversely, anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit does not belong to Him. So, authentic Christians are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and that's the ultimate factor that ensures our perseverance to the end. That's the ground of our eternal security. The Holy Spirit indwells us. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, verse 16, the spirit bears witness that we are God's children, and if we've been adopted, brought into God's family, then we're heirs, verse 17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And verse 21 promises then that we will be set free from the bondage of corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, our bodies even, which are now decaying and fleshly, will be glorified, verse 23. The Spirit even prays for us, verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And indeed, then he says, all things work together for our ultimate good, according to verse 28. So there is nothing to fear. There is no danger that could ever destroy us. There is no evil that could ruin the salvation of a genuine believer. Why? Because, and this is the reason Paul gives, because salvation is God's work, all of it. Our perseverance is not left to the question of our own free will, but God himself 
guarantees that we will persevere. He graciously keeps true believers from falling. What Paul is teaching here is a doctrine known as monergism, distilled to its purest essence. What it means is that our salvation is God's work and His alone. We're not saved by cooperating with God. We're saved by His will and His work, and all the glory belongs to Him. And our cooperation with Him is the fruit, not the reason for our salvation. Look at verse 29. It gives a list of every major aspect of salvation, divine foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. He gives those in order, and he's saying here, all of that is work done by God on our behalf. At no stage of salvation is any believer ever left to his own devices or given over to sheer chance or set loose in the quicksand of human free will or abandoned by God to work out his own salvation apart from the truth that it's God who's working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our salvation is fully accomplished by God's will and his work and his power alone. And he guarantees the completion of every step of it along the way from his foreknowledge to our final glorification. That is the whole point of verses 29 through 30. Those whom he chose, he will glorify. And he'll accomplish every step in between. By the way, the idea of foreknowledge in a context like this speaks of the eternal relationship God establishes with his people in eternity past, before we were ever born, before the world ever began. God knew us. He foreknew us. It doesn't mean that he peered into the future and decided to save us because he foresaw something that we might do to deserve it. It means he knew us. He set his love on us. He sovereignly chose us for salvation, and he did this before the beginning of time. He foreknew us. It's not that he foreknew something about us, but he foreknew us. He knew us as his loved ones before the foundation of the world. It, it doesn't mean merely that he knew what we would do or, or that he knew how we would react to the gospel. He knew and loved us before the beginning of time. And, and Paul even uses that dreaded word, predestination, teaching that God chose us and he determined our destiny in eternity past. And what is that destiny? Here he says, it is final glorification in eternity future. Notice, every aspect of this whole process is God's work. That's the point he's making. Paul isn't describing anything that we do for ourselves. In fact, the whole point here is that from start to finish, from the start in eternity past to the finish in eternity future, our salvation is accomplished for us entirely and exclusively by God's work on our behalf. And therefore, there is no possibility that God's plan for our salvation could ever be overthrown or defeated or nullified or left undone or even left to our own free will. Our perseverance in the faith is guaranteed by God himself, and no enemy, no matter how powerful, no circumstance, no matter how tragic, no trial, no matter how severe, None of it could ever undo God's plan for us. Those whom he has chosen 
will be glorified and conformed perfectly to the image of Christ, that's what he foreordained us to. And Paul makes that very point, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, follow the process and the roadmap of his logic here. If God has undertaken to save us, no enemy, no matter how powerful or pervasive or persistent, no enemy can overthrow the work of God on our behalf. And the supreme guarantee of our security is bound up in the finished work of Christ. God has already sacrificed His Son in order to save us. He already gave on our behalf what was most precious to Him. And if He already did that, how could anyone ever fear that He might withhold any grace or favor or strength or aid or comfort or gift or empowerment, or anything that we might need before we reach the finish line. He won't. And notice again what God has predestined us to, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of His Son. And until that process is fully finished and the goal is finally reached, there's no possibility whatsoever that God's work on our behalf will be permanently sidetracked or ultimately overthrown. No possibility of that. And Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1.6, that famous promise that says, God always finishes what he starts. And since God's the one who started our salvation, and he's also the finisher of it, it can't stall in the middle. And since God gave Everything at the very outset, when he sent his own dear son to die in order to pay the price of our sins, there is no possibility that he's going to waste that effort by withholding any good thing from us now. 1 Corinthians 3.23, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Psalm 84.11, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold. And so the work of God is isn't going to stall. There's no possibility of that. But then people always ask, well, what if we mess up? What about when we sin? God won't fail, but we do fail. What happens then? Do we incur the wrath of God every time we sin anew? Now remember, Paul started this chapter with a sweeping statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, judicially, justification takes care of all of our sins, past, present, and future. All of our guilt is covered by the blood of Christ. And when God justifies us, He doesn't merely wipe the slate clean and say, go and sin no more, now start over with a clean slate and do better this time. He imputes to us the perfect, complete righteousness of Christ He covers us with his own righteousness, like a garment, so that we have a perfect standing before him and we are accepted in the Beloved One. That's Ephesians 1.6. And the Beloved One, of course, is Christ. We are united with him by faith, therefore in him, accepted in him before God. And in order for God to refuse us, he would have to refuse his own son. And that's not going to happen. If Christ fully paid for our sins and covered us with His righteousness, we cannot be condemned. That's the 
very argument Paul is making here in Romans 8, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. If God has already declared us righteous, who can ever declare otherwise? That's the point he's making. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If Christ is interceding for us, why would God listen instead to someone who brings an accusation against us? Who's going to condemn us? Christ certainly won't. On the contrary, he's pleading our case before the throne of God. He's interceding for us. Paul is here making the case for our security in Christ as airtight as possible. That's what he's saying here. He's nailing down every possible corner of the argument. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He's saying there is no trial, no temptation, no threat, no earthly evil, no danger, no weapon that can ultimately shake our security in Christ. He simply couldn't state the case any more plainly or any more exhaustively than he does here. Nothing and no one can defeat God's plan of redemption for his people. As Jesus said in John 10, verses 28 and 29, I give them, believers, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He also said, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No earthly evil, no mortal enemy, no foe from hell, no force anywhere in the spiritual realm, and no degree of persecution, even at the point of a sword, could ever overthrow a genuine believer who has been grafted into Christ. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, inevitably, someone will listen to all of that and look at all of that and say, yeah, but it doesn't say we can't overthrow ourselves. What if through stupidity or sloth or sin, what if we stumble and fall? Is it possible for a sinning believer to remove himself from the hand of God? And the answer is, not if he's a genuine believer, not if he's a true believer. If you are a real Christian, a genuine believer, Philippians 2.13 says that God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Jude 24 says, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And Romans 14.4, the Lord is able to make us stand. And so you and I can say as confidently as the Apostle Paul does in 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That was Paul's confidence, and it ought to be ours. It's, it's not that we have self-confidence. It's that we're confident the Lord can make us stand. Scripture's very clear about this. The only ones who fall away, and there are people who fall away, but they are those whose faith was never genuine to begin with. Make no mistake, there are people who profess faith in Christ but fall away and abandon the faith, and they may appear for a time to have authentic, vibrant faith, but 
it never bears any real spiritual fruit. Jesus describes people like that as seed sprouts in, in shallow, rocky soil. It's one of the common characteristics wherever the gospel is preached, there will be false converts, shallow, rocky soil, as Jesus described it. Luke eight thirteen. when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these having no root believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. Their faith is shallow and temporary, rootless. It's not true saving faith, like the, those multitudes in John 6 who followed Jesus because he fed them and he did miracles, and they liked that, but they turned away as soon as they understood what he really stood for. They are people who were never genuinely converted in the first place. First John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Judas is the quintessential example of this. Never a true believer. He managed to fool the disciples for three years at least. But if your faith is real, you don't need to fear that you might lose it. Now, if your faith is merely a fragile, shallow, skeptical, vacillating, temporary kind of pious ascent, you have no salvation to lose. That's the reason Scripture is filled with warnings and exhortations like 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see if you're really in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified, meaning reprobate, utterly unredeemed. And Paul is writing to the Corinthian church there with that admonition, begging them each individually to examine themselves to see if they really are in the faith. But genuine believers never need to fear a final defeat at the hands of any spiritual foe. Scripture is full of comfort for genuine believers that that will never happen verse 37 we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and it's at that very point in romans 8 where paul sums up what he's been saying with the words of our text this is his closing and the pinnacle of his argument in this chapter for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that is deliberately poetic. It's an inspired hymn about the security of the true believer and the love that will not let us go. Notice that the stress is on what we've been singing about all morning, the love of God. It's not about any inherent power or ability in the sinner to preserve himself, to persevere on his own power. It's not that we don't let go of God's love, but that his love won't let go of us. We're saved because of the love of God, purchased by that love, sovereignly brought into the fold by that love, effectually called and justified and guaranteed ultimate glorification by that same love, And that's the whole context of this. That's what Paul has been saying. And now he says in the strongest possible terms that nothing, no power, no person, no phenomenon, no possibility could ever separate us from the redemptive love of God. So let's break this passage down and 
and look at it methodically, these two verses. And notice, first of all, how Paul sets up a series of contrasts. That's what makes this poetic. It's as if he looks left and right and up and down and back and forth and in and out in every possible direction and ultimately declares that there is nothing in all the universe that poses any threat to the perseverance and security of the believer. He examines every possible arena from which any threat might ever come, and he declares that nothing in the whole realm of creation is able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the strongest possible statement that those who are genuinely redeemed could never be lost. I can't imagine any words you might add to this text to make it more definitive. And so we'll break it into five sections. It sort of naturally falls out that way. We'll look at each one of them individually. Paul considers the human condition, the spirit world, the advance of time, the extremes of infinity, and then all the rest of creation. And he uses these poetic contrasts to make his point. So we'll follow the points of Paul's outline, the way he lays it out, as we work through these two verses. And I'll make it as easy as possible for you to write down the main points. So get ready to write. First, Paul deals with the human condition. The human condition. Remember, this is poetic. He's writing in contrasts. His thoughts come in couplets of ideas. He's making a list of opposites. Death and life, angels and demons, things present, things to come, height and depth. And then he sweeps up anything and everything that might be left with this expression, any other created thing. And by beginning with the words, neither death nor life, he covers, if you think about it, everything that pertains to the human condition. Nothing in all of death or life, Paul says, can thwart God's redemptive love for us. Now, it's significant, I think, and and you probably notice this as you read it, because it kind of jars the way we normally think of things. He names death first. We usually say life or death. He says death and life. He's writing this epistle to believers in Rome who were living right under the nose of the evil emperor Nero, who was a madman, and Nero had deliberately and maliciously made Christians the scapegoats for everything that was wrong in the Roman Empire. Nero's own policies were unpopular because he governed Rome by arbitrary and egotistical whims. He wanted to build himself a palace in the heart of Rome, but he couldn't because there was no land available. And so he set Rome on fire, burned it down, and blamed the Christians. They were a convenient scapegoat because people didn't know very much about them and, and they were despised by pretty much everybody because uh, the Jews hated the, the Christians because they wanted a different kind of Messiah. The pagans hated them because they didn't worship the mythical gods of Rome. Most people in that culture actually regarded Christians as atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. And so Nero used the unpopularity of Christianity for his own selfish political ends, just like politicians today are doing. And he began one of the most vicious campaigns of persecution and slaughter ever carried out by any earthly government. He used to capture Christians and bind them in layers of rags soaked in creosote 
and impale them on stakes, then set them afire and use their burning bodies as torches to light his garden parties. That's an upbeat party, isn't it? He fed them to beasts in the gladiatorial arenas. He would, he would actually sew them into the skins of animals and feed them to the lions. He would torture and kill them in vicious ways, very creatively vicious ways, just out of sheer delight because he liked to watch helpless people suffer. And that kind of thing is what Paul acknowledges and refers to in verse 36. He's quoting actually from Psalm 44, 22, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what the people in Rome were, the Christians in Rome were living in. And yet Paul says, we are the conquerors, not the conquered. In fact, we're more than conquerors, verse 37. Death may threaten us. It will ultimately claim our earthly bodies for a time, but it cannot conquer us because it cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. So death is no threat. What about life? You know, for for many people, it's not death but life that poses the most frightening prospect because, face it, life in this world is fraught with sin and frustration. Earthly life in a sin-cursed world, is nothing but a drawn-out process of dying. And so, in some ways, life is even more frightening and more threatening than instant death, including martyrdom at the point of a sword. Remember that the Apostle Paul himself came to the point of saying in Romans 7, just before this, Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He knew the frustrations of earthly life in his own experience. But death is the end of sin. It's the end of frustration. It's the end of temptation and the end of, the, of our work and the end of our trouble. It's living that's really hard. Spurgeon said, I'm not so much afraid of dying as I am of sinning. That's ten times worse, he said. And I agree with Spurgeon. The longer we live, the more we face temptation... And I sometimes think it would be nice just to see the end of the warfare early. You know, you watch the news at night, and every night I think, Lord, come quickly. And I'm not just being morbid. Paul himself agreed with that. He said in Philippians 1, 23 and 24, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh, he says, is more necessary on your account. We still have work to do in this world. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. But here Paul says, as difficult as life is, there's nothing in it that we should be fear, fearful of that might separate us from the love of God. Even if you live to old age, you don't need to fear life. Whatever the trials and hardships there are in life, and there are plenty They're temporary afflictions. Even the worst of our afflictions are light, momentary afflictions that are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. And don't miss verse 18 right here in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And meanwhile... 
There's nothing in all of life, even if you should live to be as old as Methuselah, there's nothing in life that could ever separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's a a great truth to know in times when hardships are abundant and, and the news is always bad. We're still more than conquerors, even in this life. Here's a second point. Paul now turns from the hardships and trials of the human condition to things that we can't even see. This is point number two, the spirit world. The spirit world. Not only is there nothing to fear from either death nor life, he also says we have nothing to fear from angels or principalities or powers. Earlier I was reading from the ESV, which says angels nor rulers. The Greek word there is arche, which speaks of someone in a high place of magisterial authority. And Paul often puts that word together with dunamis, powers, to make it principalities and powers. And whenever you see that expression, principalities and powers, it usually signifies demons. And that's what I think the context suggests here, demons in contrast to angels. But it could also be a reference to the demonic brutality of Nero. In either case, wicked rulers that are seen or unseen, uh, or angels, Paul says we have nothing to fear from them. Now, it might seem obvious that we have nothing to fear from the holy angels. They won't separate us from the love of God because they wouldn't have any motive to, to do that. But remember, Paul is making a list here of contrasting extremes, death and life, angels and demons, things present, things future, height and depth. He's showing that no matter which direction you look, up or down, in or out, back or forth, whatever, you will discover no threat to your security. And so he includes in that series of extremes and opposites both angels and demons. Neither one of them poses any threat. And if you think about it in biblical terms, you might be able to imagine why Paul would include angels in this list, because angels guard the holiness of heaven. They, have, they might have actually righteous reasons for turning us away from the presence of God, and, and they are fearsome creatures. Every time anyone in the Bible encounters an angel, the immediate result is fear. And it's not just a little bit of fear, but the most troubling kind of dread and terror and, and holy horror, people who saw angels in the Bible fell on their faces and sometimes became catatonic. You know, a lot of the popular lore and fantasies about angels these days has toned down that concept, that the angels are, you know, something that caused fear. That's what the Bible suggests. We have, you know, Raphael's famous painting of angels that has these two little cherubs looking like cute little kids and, and they're resting on their elbows with their chins on their hands and their eyes are looking up like they're bored. Well, and the actors who portray angels on programs like Touched by an Angel, they're always the benign, sort of kindly, gentle, elderly, soft-spoken people who you might want to have as your grandparents. Or they might be slightly dumb, absent-minded old uncle types like Clarence in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. But if you think about what the Bible says about angels, that's not the picture at all. The Bible describes them as magnificent, imposing creatures with features like lions and eagles and other beasts. And one of their main tasks is to stand as sentinels around the heavenly throne. And the Bible describes them as 
terrifying to look at, especially if you are a sinful creature. And frankly, if it weren't for the fact that God loves us and Christ covers us with his own righteousness, the holy angels would have every right and every reason to cast us out of heaven and banish us forever from the presence of God. But that's something we don't need to fear. Verse 33 again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's already justified us. So what of the demons? Well, you know, devils are the same kind of terrifying creatures as the holy angels, except that they have fallen from glory and they do want to overthrow us. They're powerful creatures too. And that's reflected in this expression that Paul often uses when he refers to them, principalities and powers, or as the ESV has it, rulers. In the words of Ephesians 6.12, they are the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, meaning the celestial realms, powers, because they are incredibly powerful creatures. Now, that would seem something to fear. And a lot of Christians do live in constant fear of what demons might do to them. But do we need to fear them? Not according to this passage. And, and not according to 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than Satan and all his angels combined, even Satan himself, the arch-fiend, cannot prevail to separate us from the love of God in Christ. In fact, you see that played out clearly in the book of Job, where Scripture gives us a glimpse behind the scenes, and we learn that Satan is actually powerless to do anything God does not expressly permit him to do. Now, there are times when the the devil might desire to sift us like wheat, as he did with Peter. But even if God gives him permission to do that, we still have Christ interceding for us, guaranteeing that our faith will never fail, just like he did for Peter. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's Luke eleven four, And God always answers that prayer. Satan himself, with all his minions, and with all his evil devices, cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You're familiar with Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. He wrote this stanza that we often sing. Although this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. This text at the end of Romans 8 is an explicit promise of that truth. Now next... Paul moves from the spirit world to the realm of earthly worries, and here he covers a, a vast assortment of troubles and says even these can never defeat us spiritually. If you're taking notes, this is number three. We'll call it the advance of time. The advance of time. For I am sure that neither things present nor things to come will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Things present and things to come. That covers just about everything you might ever worry about. What's included in things present? Whatever burden you're currently struggling with, the bad news you saw on CNN this morning, or whatever you watched. And trust me, I, I know that 
every week people come to church with almost unbearable burdens. Believers, Christians, who have financial worries, heartaches that you could barely imagine, depression, sickness, worries about wayward children and other family members, struggles that you've hidden in your own hearts and and you feel you just can't share even with anyone, and every kind of human anguish, things present. Those are the very things Paul is talking about here in verse 18 when he says, the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And trust me, for some people, many people, right here in our midst, the sufferings of this present time sometimes seem overwhelming and oppressive and devastating. And here's a promise you can cling to in the midst of those present difficulties. They can never separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And furthermore, God is using them for good, for your good. Verse 28, God's tender loving kindness and compassion may sometimes appear to be obscured from your view and cut off from your experience. And and there are times of spiritual darkness when even for believers, all hope seems like it's been extinguished. But nothing can ever completely separate you from God's love if you are in Christ. And, And God's promise that you will always triumph in Christ is as sure as His Word. And that's a true reality for every Christian. It's an anchor that will keep you steady in the midst of all things present. What about things to come? No real threat there either, and that's really good news in an age of uncertainty and terrorism and worldly prospects that, frankly, all look pretty bleak right now. People keep asking me about you know, the presidential election. Honestly, I don't see a happy ending, no matter what. I can't imagine a happy ending. The world's getting darker. And we're often reminded of that fact by the evening news. So what does the future hold for you and me? I don't know. But I'm reaching an age where I am often reminded that the future can't be all pleasant. I'm not getting any younger, and neither are any of you. And if all you contemplate is this earthly life, things can be pretty frightening. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied because, frankly, even the highest of all our earthly hopes really aren't that bright. And I hate to sound like a pessimist, but that is the reality of life in a world that is cursed with sin. But thank God this life is not our hope. No matter what the future brings, it cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. And our future, the ultimate future which is the only part of the future that really matters, is secure in Christ. Nothing future can jeopardize us because God has set his love on us for all eternity. And there will come a time when all the things present and all the things now future that might frighten you, all of those things will be distant memories. If you remember them at all in the bliss of heaven, where God's love will be poured out on us in undiluted fullness throughout eons and eons of eternity. That's a thought that will give you boldness and security if you can just lay hold of it. And think about this. If you're a believer, 
that's only because God's love has already laid hold of you. The advance of time cannot bring anything into your experience that will tear you away from that love. That's what Paul is saying. And now he moves on to the next idea. This is number four on our list. Number four, the extremes of infinity. He adds two more contrasting expressions at the beginning of verse 39. Nor height, nor depth. And I love this expression because it underscores how utterly infinite our security is. There are no boundaries you can possibly imagine that limit the ideas of height or depth. Paul is saying no matter how far you go to the furthest reaches of infinity, you will never go beyond the reach of God's love. And you will never discover any real threat to your security in Christ. To borrow words from Psalm 139, that famous psalm where David celebrates this very truth, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now, I'm not the kind of person that's easily frightened by heights. My dad was a roofing contractor, and he would often take me to the tops of really high buildings, and even when I was very young, and I love the views you get from lofty heights. I've never been afraid to fly, and I love to stay on the upper floors in big hotels. But some people fear heights, and, and I mean that in both a, a literal and figurative sense. There are some people whose fears actually seem intensified when they are on the mountaintop. You know, when things in life are going well, fear seems to arise in them. Darlene's a little like that. She, she always reminds me when things are going well that something is probably going to go wrong. And it usually does. And let's be honest, there is a healthy dose of wisdom in that kind of caution. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is danger in the heights, but it's not the kind of danger that ought to paralyze us with fear. Paul says God's love itself is infinite, and it reaches to the highest heights. We sang that this morning. So that no matter what heights you may ascend to, God's love for you is higher still. And what about the depths? I think most of us are more familiar with the depths than we are with the heights. The psalmist had a lot to say about the depths. Psalm 130 is all about that. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. That's, a, that's a, almost an echo, or maybe it's the other way around. It's a parallel passage to, to uh, Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish. From the depths. And I could multiply quotations from David, but I won't. He was familiar with the depths, and he constantly testified that God's love always found him in the depths and raised him up out of the miry clay and set his feet on a rock so that he could confidently say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. No depth is so deep that it isolates us from the love of God, and that's a source of the greatest kind of security. Now we have to move on. Here's a quick review. 
Paul has looked at, in case you didn't get all of these, the human condition, the spirit world, the advance of time, the extremes of infinity, and in none of those realms does he ever discover anything that can threaten the security of the true believer whose life is hid with Christ in God. And so he turns to one final category in order to make his meaning perfectly clear. This is the only category he gives that doesn't involve a contrasting pair of ideas. It's a catch-all category that sweeps up every other conceivable idea in order to say as plainly as possible that there is nothing in existence anywhere or at any time that poses any threat to the Christian's security. If you're taking notes, this is number five, the rest of creation. All the rest of creation. Now, now be honest. All the things Paul has already named would seem to cover every possible threat to the Christian's security. But just in case, he adds this final phrase, verse 39, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Greek expression would be literally translated this way, nor any other created thing. I like how the ESV perfectly captures the sense of it. Nothing else in all creation. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Because if you think about it, when you eliminate everything in creation, all you're left with is God, right? Everything else is part of creation. So this is everything other than God himself. And now pay attention because this is the whole point of Romans 8. God has already justified us. If God be for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nothing. Nothing in all of creation. This passage taken as a whole in context is an amazing statement about our security, isn't it? It always amazes me that there are people who can read this passage and still tell people that if they're not careful, they might lose their salvation and be separated from the love of God forever. How can you read this text and think that? And frankly, that's why I hate this aspect of Arminian doctrine, the idea that you can lose your salvation. It's a lie from the pit of hell. If you are a Christian, you don't need to fear life or death, angels or demons, time or eternity, height or depth, or anything else in all of creation. And if you are in Christ, you are secure there. You can live with that confidence, and, and you can function without fear, and you can look forward to the future, because the ultimate future is as bright as it could possibly be. And you'll discover that there is a great amount of spiritual power in that confidence. But what if you're here this morning without Christ? You need to know, and, and I want to say to you with heartfelt concern, that if you are without Christ, none of these promises apply to you. None of them. In fact, the very opposite is true. Just as Nothing can shake the security of a true believer. Nothing in all of life or creation can save the unbeliever from the penalty of his sin or the weight of his guilt. Only Christ can do that. And the good news is that Christ invites all comers. He promises to give eternal life and therefore eternal security to all who turn from their sin and turn to him in simple faith. You can't do anything to earn his favor, but he's already gained favor with God on behalf 
of those who trust him as their only Savior. He removes their guilt. He covers them with the garment of his own righteousness. And I have good news for you. He offers the water of life to all who are thirsty. And my prayer for you is that the Spirit of God will lead you to that stream so that you will have a full share in the blessed promise of this text. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing security is in this insecure and troubled world. There are no human words that could possibly express our deep gratitude for the gift of your Son, for the salvation he purchased for his people. And we freely confess the sinfulness, the fickleness, the frailty of our own fallen hearts. And we thank you for the grace that keeps us secure in Christ because we could never do that for ourselves. He's the rock of our salvation. He's the immovable foundation we cling to. He's the only true security we know. And may we bear these truths in mind. May we fix our hearts and affections on him. And may we look to him for the power and the steadfastness we need each day. As we seek to live for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.